0: Welcome to episode 205 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Nathan Smith, Andrew Swafford, Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we will be talking about movies we saw this week in part one, and in part two, we'll be continuing our young critics watch old Movies series with 1977's Killer of Sheep. Uh, but before that, before all of that, really, uh, we wanted to go over some comments that Andrew had received on his uh, gun video. We talked about it last week, but we got some fun ones. Andrew, talk a, a little bit about what you saw on Facebook and YouTube.
1: Yeah, um, we've gotten a lot of great positive feedback um, from my video essay that I plugged at the beginning of last week's show, uh, Guns Don't Kill People, Knives Kill People. Uh, if you haven't watched that, uh, I really recommend that you do so. Uh, you can find it on the cemetery homepage on our video essay tab or on our YouTube channel. Or Facebook, um, but uh, I've gotten a lot of great comments. Some that I want to respond to. Um, I also want to talk about an article quickly that was written about the video essay that I was super surprised to see. Um, but the first comment, the one that I will probably always treasure the most, um, is a comment from someone on Facebook who simply said, "Fuck off, you lying assholes." Uh, <laughs> their uh, their Facebook avatar has a "We the People." Uh, American flag and they don't tread on me flag as their banner so you know I, I feel like just judging off of those like cultural icons that I feel like I'm pissing off the right people and you know I, I feel proud of that um, now on a, the more serious comments um, we've gotten a couple of people on YouTube um, suggest titles that they, they think fit interestingly into um, the the System that I've kind of developed for talking about guns in genre movies, Um, some some movies that have been thrown out there include um, No Country for Old Men, um, in which you have a sort of slasher character um, who uses um, first an air gun that's used to kill cattle, but then later a shotgun um, in the climax of the movie. And then somebody else uh, bringing up the example of Zodiac, um, in which the killer holds a couple uh, hostage... They're not hostage, I guess, but he, like, comes across them uh, when they're on a date, um, ties them up, and has a gun that he threatens them with. And I think that both of these are are interesting examples um, because these are movies that kind of toe the line of, like, what genre they actually belong in. And and I had a a hard time at at points— Deciding what movies to put in the video essay and what movies not to include in the video essay based on like how pure of like genre exercises they, they really are. Like you can make the argument that uh, The Guest, which I talked about, is not really a horror movie. Um, you can make the argument that um, Heat, which I talk about, is, is not really an action movie, but more of a police procedural, um, which I think that Zodiac and No Critique for Old Men could also be considered as well. And like how guns factor into the police procedural seems to be very different from how they work in action and horror. And so like though both of those movies like have a lot of horrific elements and I would I might actually count No Country for Old Men as more of a horror movie since it works primarily with fear uh, more so than anything else. Um, it's its use of guns is is so weird because it's kind of got its toe in in other genres. Um not the the whole uh, issue of like what genres get left out by my video essay, kind of got brought up in this article that I wanted to talk about. Um, It it was a really um, well-written and nice article uh, by uh, this um, writer Purcell Liddy, or Purcell Liddy, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name, uh, for Film School Rejects, also known as One Perfect Shot. Um, They did this really long write-up about the video essay, encouraging people to watch it. Um, And near the end, they they point out a couple of of blind spots in the video essay, things I don't touch on. Um, it says, uh, Swaffer's exploration of on screen gun use is not totally comprehensive. Uh, gun violence in Westerns is only given cursory mention, and the way in which tropes might affect gun use in detective stories or police procedurals is left unexplored. Um, and that is um, a totally fair point. Um, I really restricted myself to what I saw as like pure um, examples of the horror genre or the action genre and movies that we're kind of working in two modes at the same time i tried to ignore um though there are a couple examples like you know uh, the guest or night of the hunter uh, that are kind of questionable uh, cases Uh, but you know if i if i was to make a video essay about all, all instances of, of gun use on screen, it would just be like about all of American cinema because there's just like so many guns in American movies and like every single genre. So I tried to be as limited as I possibly can, even though the, the video ended up being like pretty huge in scope. Um, but I, I think that all these are really interesting points, and I hope people continue to talk about the video essay and think about what these ideas might mean in other contexts.
2: So to clarify, you're not a lying asshole.
1: Um. Not intentionally, so maybe I am unintentionally. Um, okay. I I tried to be very fair in my uh, like being very nonpartisan, like <laughs> using mostly statistics to determine my points rather than uh, uh, like you know, politicians' rhetoric or whatever. Um. So yeah.
0: Coming coming from a journalist, they don't even care about that. Yeah. So. <laughs> They don't care about that either. Uh, you can I will put a link to the uh, film school rejects and one perfect shot article in the description. But yeah, if you haven't watched it, like Andrew said, it's on the Cinematary homepage, it's on our YouTube channel, and it's on our Facebook page, at the very top. So please give it a look and share it if if you if you feel to feel like it. You know, it's, we're not forcing you into anything. If you really like what comes out, then you can share it. Uh- <laughs> um, let's go ahead and just shift to... Uh- some movies we saw this week. Andrew, Michael, and Nathan, you guys caught the new Unfriended movie.
1: I feel like Nathan is the one most uh, qualified to talk about this. Um, He was a big fan of the original Unfriended and had a lot of thoughts about it.
3: Yeah, the um, first Unfriended movie, which came out in 2015, was one of my favorite movies of that year. Um, Of course, the gimmick now, you know, is fairly well known. It's a movie uh, entirely set on a computer desktop, um, it's The first film was about a group of high school teenagers who um, were knew someone at their school, were friends with someone who, who killed herself, um, and you find out that she's basically cyber-bullied to death, and her ghost has come back from revenge, and throughout this 80-minute narrative, this Skype hangout session between these friends, secrets are revealed, and you realize that everyone is hiding these Dark, terrible things that they've done in ways that they contributed uh, to this girl's death. Um, so you, it's it's that that film I thought was very interesting and in how it sort of played with that with that gimmick and had a really sort of effective storytelling technique where it would use everything on screen and sort of the interfaces of of social media and Skype and Spotify and different apps and websites in really clever ways. Um, you know, it turns the uh, th- three dot typing bubble that that most Apple users are uh, familiar with into this really um, anxiety inducing source of dread. Um, and so, I love, I, I like that movie quite a bit. It's it, the thing is though, um, it is not really. I think it has things to say about about technology, about the internet, about the relationship between online spaces and the, the our material, uh, tangible reality. But I think it was more just interested in using that technology as a formal and storytelling device as opposed to actually making that the main interest of the movie um, so this sequel, Unfriended Dark Web, um, which is directed by Steven Susco, who comes from a very traditional horror background. He wrote both of the first two American grudge movies. He wrote uh, The Texas Chainsaw 3D. So this is someone who's really sort of steeped in the language of, of modern uh, contemporary American horror, um, which is different than the director of the first one whose name I cannot remember. Uh, let's look it up. Levin Gabrits, who is a Russian director who's done like one film before and isn't necessarily from like a horror background. You know, he's just a sort of journeyman filmmaker. Um, so I think in, in this, these two films are definitely doing different things, even though they are sort of united by this central formal conceit. This film, Unfriended Dark Web, is about the technology. It is about um, a guy named uh, Matthias who is trying to program a an online application that allows him to speak in sign language with his girlfriend who's deaf. He hasn't really learned sign language yet, so this is sort of a visual dictionary to allow them to communicate. And he is having a hard time with his... Computer with with how slow it is Making this program So he steals a computer From a coffee shop um, He starts getting Menacing messages From someone on Facebook Claiming to be the friend Of the person Whose laptop he has um, You know Other people start Sending him very Sort of frightening Messages about uh, asking asking the uh, user of this laptop, whose name according to Facebook, is Nora c four um, you know asking if they m- make these custom jobs and he soon finds this hidden folder of really disturbing videos of of young women who have been kidnapped and are being tortured and he finds that basically this laptop is the property of a hacker from uh, the dark web, which if you're not familiar with the dark web or the deep web or the deep net or whatever you want to call it um, it is basically the the vast space of the internet that cannot be archived or accessed through search engines. So you have, you know, just a lot of dead links, you have, you know, password protected, Sites technically count as part of this, but in the darker corners, you have really depraved shit, supposedly. I don't know, you know, you always hear a lot of... I don't
1: think it actually exists. You always hear, like, you know,
3: I've heard urban legends about this stuff for years, you know, about, like, child porn and assassins for hire and obviously the Silk... Child
1: porn probably The Silk Road,
3: which was a big sort of drug um, selling operation that was shut down a few years ago. You know, so you always hear these, like, things about that. So it's basically... Matthias finds that uh, this is the property of one of these hackers and gets his friends on their their Skype call Game Night, which actually the original title of this movie I found was supposed to be uh, Unfriended Game Night, but of course changed had to change its name because of the recent movie called Game Night. So they're like Dark Web is a better title. They're getting to, I think Game Night is a better title. Uh, I agree. Actually, <laughs> uh, so the, you know they get to, him and his friends get together. To play Cards Against Humanity over Skype, and they are soon brutalized and tortured and killed eventually by this uh, secret shadowy mob of, of hackers and, and internet users. Um, I that was a very long synopsis. I didn't mean to spend that much time (laughs) explaining it, but I feel like it is a very sort of intricate movie in its storytelling. Um, You know, it's like the first one. I think it is fairly clever. In its use of these websites to to build tension, to sort of subvert your expectations. It's a very text-heavy movie. I mean, like, the first 15, 20 minutes before the horror ramps up, you're doing a lot of reading. You're reading conversations between Matthias and his girlfriend. You're reading conversations between him and the Facebook friends of the person whose laptop this is. Um and you're, you he even like Googles things or looks up things on Wikipedia to find out information. But there's,
1: there's so much technological literacy that I feel like you have to have or to understand this. Yeah. Movie. Like I'm trying to imagine like a, a very non-tech savvy senior citizen watching unfriended uh, dark web and like the scenes where he like opens up terminal using hotkeys yeah. and like throws all this code into, to like find hidden folders and stuff like that. Like I can, I can basically trace what he's doing, but for somebody who like barely knows how Facebook works. I think it would be yeah. impenetrable. Yeah, because there's, there's like
2: dramatic points where the the tension of the moment is from like you know whatever you what the commands you see put into, like the command prompt right. exactly. and yeah you know you you recognize people's names but if you don't really understand like the. Um, you know, the the command itself that that person's name, like, you know, like there, it involves, like, you know, using the command prop to, like, ban IPs from the, like, yeah. the Skype program and things like that. That's, like, really. Like, you know, not just surface level user interface stuff.
1: He has like multiple windows open at the same time and you have to know like what things uh, somebody in this window can see him doing in the other window and what things they can't. It's it's a kind of complicated uh, um, situation that is, you know, this movie is working with.
3: That being said, it does try really hard to explain a lot of things like at a certain point in the movie uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain become very important and those are things that I don't think most people, myself included, actually really intimately understand. I don't no know people. About yeah, a lot of people now have this sort of abstract understanding. I think of what like cryptocurrency is. So the movie doesn't really have to fully explain that, but it is clear, you maybe need to know a little bit about this going into it. That being said, it is a a movie that is just, uh, uh, seeped in information and in references to the events of today. Um, at the beginning the, the movie opens with, uh, you find out Matthias is, you know, logging into this computer and trying to find passwords to make it work. Um, and is typing in all these like sort of I mean, now they're kind of outdated, but but somewhat contemporaneous references to stuff like the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. And like he types in coffee. Yeah. Yeah. And there's even references to like Cambridge Analytica. Um, So it's a very of the moment movie, much more than the first one, which is a little more abstract in the sort of supernatural paranormal horror. This one is like about today, about the current moment, you know, not to. Spoilers, but one of the characters in the film is killed uh, by swatting, um, which which is basically when people online, like uh, places like 4chan, when they're trying to harass someone, they will put in a SWAT call to this person's house, and so this character is killed um, mm, by that. I didn't know that was a 4chan thing. Yeah, it's it's a it's a real thing, and so the movie is really trying to make a statement. Um, which for me, I don't know about you guys didn't really I just wasn't that interested in like making a really pertinent statement to now like I, what do you what do you think the statement is
1: yeah I, I was not. I didn't walk away with a clear understanding of some sort of political message the movie was trying to send.
3: Well, I don't think it's trying to make a very specific message, but ultimately the ending of the movie, um, which one thing that bears mentioning, which which uh, <laughs> is that this movie actually has two different endings. I will say that the end result of both endings is the same, but there are two different endings. I don't exactly know why. They're not that different. I read an interview with the director where he called reports of multiple endings, Air quotes, fake news, and didn't even really seem to know that there were multiple endings to this movie. Um, so it's, I, but, but the end of the movie, you know, basically you find out that this whole thing has been a game sort of run by this mob of internet watchers and users, which felt a lot like the movie Nerve to me from a couple years ago, which I liked a lot. Um, but I don't know. It's, I feel like it ultimately tries to sort of make this I just ultimate to me felt very nihilistic message about the internet, which obviously we have more and more reasons to feel badly about the internet and to question what it's done to our society. But I don't know it's just, I felt to me like it felt very alarmist in it's engagement with technology. Um, but at the same time is like totally indebted to that technology as the Backbone of the movie, you know, as its stru- real structure. I don't know if you guys felt anything like that, or if you didn't think that the movie was trying to say anything at all.
1: I definitely think that the technology itself is the source of the horror in this movie. Whereas in the original Unfriended, you kind of have the supernatural element of uh, someone come back from the dead and kind of haunting people through technology. I think the the main difference for me, and and I agree with you, Nathan. I think the first one is stronger. Um, that the first one is the a lot of the horror and the tension comes from the dynamics between the people uh, and what this this ghost uh, that you know makes and posts memes and stuff is doing in the original movie is really exposing these hidden rifts uh, between uh, the various characters on this Skype call, um, and it's it's very much a movie about like cyberbullying. It's a movie about these, uh, these hidden relationships that can develop um, uh, with the, the the you know the availability of the internet for people to kind of have surreptitious conversations without other people seeing, uh, and whereas in Dark Web, it's, you know, I think uh, Nathan, it was either on Twitter or on your letterbox review, you mentioned that one of the main differences is um, the original Unfriended only takes place on, like, quote unquote, real online spaces Facebook, Skype, Spotify, and stuff. And this movie, a great portion of it takes place on an invented program called The River, um, where all of these, these hackers um, do their, you know, anonymous exchanges. And because they have to invent this new program, like a, the, the danger all feels very abstract and unrealistic, but B um, the horror is coming from that program. It's not coming from the characters that we're actually following in the movie. And uh, like some people have, have spun this in, in a very positive light. Um, uh, what's that guy's name? Jordan Smith. Smith? Jordan yeah. Smith on Letterboxd. Uh, he said that he liked how the original film... you know, The, the original film really felt sadistic in the way that it, it showed you these teenagers bullying each other and then almost made you glad that they died. Uh, whereas in this movie, all the characters that we see are more or less innocent good people who become uh, preyed upon by this outside force. And like... That is maybe scarier uh, in, in the abstract, uh, but it's not, like, real. I mean, this, this can't happen. Therefore, like, it's not actually filling me with any sort of paranoia. Um, but also, it, it doesn't make for as compelling or, like, dramatically tense of a story as the first one did. Um, so... I enjoyed, I think, the, the the sequel to Unfriended, but I ultimately think the first one, even though it's not trying to make as much of a pertinent statement, like you said, Nathan, it, I think it has a lot more on its mind, and I think it's a lot more easy to um, kind of relate to on, on a level of, like what kind of anxieties or horror movies trying to tap into. Uh, Michael, how much of that do you agree with?
2: I mean, I mostly agree. There is one character in particular that... Andrew, I know you and I in the theater were, like, chanting for him to die. Oh, yeah. Um,
1: There's one character in here who you want to die more than any person in the original Unfriended. Right. But, yeah, I would
2: say most of the deaths are, like, it's not very fun to watch these people die. Which, like, on the one hand, like, makes this movie a lot less, like... Cathartic and right, but on Frank. the other hand, feels like maybe more like morally responsible. There's not like it's not like engaging in a sort of bloodlust, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, th- I think like the original unfriended like that. Um, the unveiling of like the friend's motives and things like that is is really interesting whereas the characters aren't particularly interesting in this one i will say and and you mentioned how complex it is like i enjoy like this is a very plotty movie like Mm -hmm. and it's a very twisty movie and i think that like it's not a particularly scary movie not even on like compared to the original unfriended which isn't like that scary
1: either. i find it odd that this guy is more um kind of in the weeds of horror filmmaking, and the first one was so the first one felt like it had more right. you know, like intense scares than this, which is almost um, I, I don't know. It's more of an investigative. movie. Yeah,
2: and and so like the the movie has this kind of interesting thing where it keeps change it like keeps adding to the rules of the movie, right? So you start off with like certain certain factors, and it keeps on adding things to the movie that complicate the the. Um, pre-existing conditions of the right. movie until like you know by the climax of the movie there's a lot there's a lot of juggling pieces and, and it's like a completely different place that you're many, at than at the beginning. Many people
1: are not at their computers anymore and so we're like looking at um, surveillance cameras and looking through the cameras on people's iPhones as they're walking and things right. like that. So it, it all gets very complicated in like how you actually make a desktop thriller work. And I,
2: I kind of like that like you know if we're not going to get these kind of like um you know like you were talking about like the this the psychology of, of friendship and, and cyberbullying and stuff like that you know you might as well make it like this tech like you know international techno thriller essentially um, <laughs> it's a black like, hat. like a very small <laughs> a very small scale version of that but like it's I mean it's like I it's like pretty engaging I think as far as like uh, just on a plot but plot point to plot point basis yeah, like, yeah it's yeah. pretty it's pretty good on that regard but I do agree with um, The message about technology is kind of, I don't know if, I don't know if I care that it's alarmist, but it's, it's nothing much more than just like, boy, there are a lot of things about the internet that really suck. And that's, it feels, if it's going to go for all these kind of, uh, of the moment illusions and tying it to contemporary events and stuff like that, just to make that all in the service of gosh, technology sure drives people to do terrible things sometimes is a pretty basic point to make right to tie together all of our like you know current fears about
3: technology i will say really quick so we can talk about other stuff um i think the one of the big differences for me between these two movies is the first one is fundamentally to me sort of about about death and and you know it's a ghost movie it's about what happens to people's facebooks after they die you know what happens to what we leave online and the second one is about the internet as a living thing I I mean every character dies spoilers not that shocking Um, Ah. but it is (laughs) you know you have these multiple endings the movie itself is this sort of unstable object it's about how things relate to right now it's about how these terrible things continue in perpetuity, you know, the camera zooming out at the end to reveal the anonymous mob. It's about how this is going to keep happening, how this game night isn't just one night, but, you know, it's going to extend over and over and over and over again. And the cycle is just going to repeat itself and there are going to be more movies and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so to me, that's the big difference here. And. Um, it's probably not
1: going to age as well because no.
3: Of- I mean the you know, the first unfriended has aged in a lot of ways, but the thing is is that the 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 sites that are the foundation of that movie structure are still familiar to, to us. You know, Facebook and and YouTube and Spotify, but this is just is totally like it's there. Hat the the story has to do more explaining because you have all this made up shit. And I fundamentally think that the the true horror of the internet which I think the first movie captures because you're mostly seeing familiar spaces is sort of the unseen, the unknown, even though there's really terrible stuff online, you know, it's, it's always sort of our imagination of what's behind the next click. And I think this movie doesn't really capture that fully for me. I mean, it shows, you know, these sort of glimpses of like really terrifying torture videos and stuff, but I don't think it really fully grasps that like, like, the terror of like you don't know what's after the next click. So
1: it's too conspiratorial to be yeah. uh, relatable, right? Yeah. Um, I also think that the ways in which this movie is similar to Nerve really do it a disservice because Nerve yeah. is just like such a better movie. Than yeah. this. But um, I don't. It's not bad. I, if people yeah. liked the original Unfriended, I would recommend going to see it. Um, I'd also uh, be curious to hear from people who are you know maybe not that tech savvy, like how this movie plays for them. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, yeah, there it is. Yeah, we should talk about something else now.
0: <laughs> we should. <laughs> well, you guys uh, went very long on that. It's uh, we're already at the twenty-six <laughs> minute mark. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna toss it over to yeah. Michael. You've been watching some Disney movies Man, lately as I. part of your uh, <laughs> summer
2: series. Yeah, so I'm. we well, have a personal blog like unrelated to Cinematary, but like every What's your summer blog address. Uh, it's. I kind of hate it. I changed the title forever <laughs> ago. With hey ho, w i t h h
0: e y h. Can I, Can I suggest a title? For Please you? do. Mo Malley, Mo Problems. Oh my God. (laughs) That's a good one. That's better than that. I had just
2: read a a Shakespeare play and I was like, I'm going to make a Shakespeare quote. That's the title of my blog, which is terrible. Don't ever do it. With Hey Ho. Blogspot? Yeah, dot blogspot.com. But anyway, regardless, every summer I try to do some sort of like series just to keep me busy while I'm not teaching and stuff. Um, And this summer I decided to kind of do little like capsule reviews of all the Disney anime, Walt Disney anime. Studios' canonical features, which there are 56 of them, starting with Snow White in 1938, I think, and then Moana was the most recent one in 2016. Everyone that
1: played theatrically.
2: Right. Everyone that played theatrically, right? So the, the canon, and the canon technically differs from country to country, like in Europe, for example, Dinosaur is not included, um, but in America <laughs> it in America, it unfortunately <laughs> is. But anyway, so like I'm not re-watching all of them, and I've seen like a good deal, there's probably only about a a dozen of these maybe that i haven't seen um so most of this is review but a lot of these movies i hadn't seen in in probably like 10 years or something like that even though i spent a lot of my childhood either watching these movies myself or or you know kind of being forced to like sit beside my siblings as they watch these movies and so it's it's this weird mix of very very familiar stuff but also stuff i haven't really engaged as an adult that much um and so i've been uh watching through a ton of those i'm almost done i just watched the 2011 winnie the pooh that means i have only a handful left um but um yeah it's it's been interesting um probably the biggest surprise for me going through it um i'm just gonna like kind of highlight some stuff is how little i liked the rescuers Um, (laughs) (laughs) like i don't know i i i liked that movie a lot when i was growing up um but i think like as an adult i'm much more conscious of tonal shifts and i'm also much more conscious of the craft of the animation and i think um that's one thing that's stuck out to me um across this whole project is a like how often i really really enjoy the animation even in crappy movies um but also B, like how tonally inconsistent a lot of these Disney movies are. Um and, and The Rescuers is just terrible in that regard. Um, and in both regards really. It's like at the height of the like cost-cutting xerography era, like after Walt Disney died. Um, And so it has kind of cool, moody visuals, but that are, like, strung together with just some really, really terrible, like, cut-rate animation. And then that's, like, matched with, like, this, like, super dark story about this woman who's, like, kidnapped a girl and is, like, exploiting her and putting her in physically dangerous situations. Like, contrasted with, like, scenes of, like, hillbilly mice feeding uh, you know, hooch to a, a dragonfly so the dragonfly can fly faster and <laughs> things like that that are just like really silly and over the top and uh, I remember really liking The Rescuers when I was younger and I really dislike it now. Um, is
1: that the lowest point that
2: your series has taken you?
1: Uh,
2: no, no. I mean like they
1: <laughs> I, I,
2: Oliver and Company is terrible. The, the lowest point is Chicken Little which I watched, <laughs> um, I watched for the first time a week or two ago and it's just awful guys. Like it's like it's it's awful on like just a technical level cuz it's like, you know, mid 2000s CGI, but it's not even like Pixar cutting edge CGI for the time. It's like Disney doing it and Disney had not really done a fully CGI movie before and so it looks Awful, uh, but it's also like symbolically terrible because that's the moment where Disney was like, we're done with cell animation. We're going to do CGI all the time. And so the first fully CGI movie they do just looks like absolute trash and it just spells doom for the artistic prospects of the future of the studio. Um,
1: so we did a series way back um, The Dark Ages of Disney um, Yeah Where we were talking about the, the periods in between Like the Golden Age And the Renaissance And stuff like that So we've talked about Some of the bad movies That we didn't talk about Chicken Little What are the really great ones That you feel like People don't appreciate enough Well so I'm gonna I'm gonna mention this Just cause
2: it's not it's a well reviewed movie and, and and all that but like people need to go freaking see the 2011 Winnie the Pooh movie. <laughs> that movie is amazing, guys. Uh, it's the last uh, traditional cell animated movie that Disney has done and it looks wonderful. It's, you know, I, I complain about the xerography um, era, but the original Winnie the Pooh Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh in 1977 is based off of short films that were earlier in that same era. So you have that kind of like scratchy sketchy effect but it's actually done by really talented animators who were overseen by like Walt Disney and stuff like that and so like that movie uses that um, like the kind of first dark age of Disney the aesthetic of that dark age really well um, particularly because it like highlights how the uh, the characters are just illustrations in a storybook, and the movie calls attention to the fact that they're just inside a storybook the whole time. And the two thousand and eleven Winnie the Pooh, um, a it uses animation that like is intentionally like recreating that kind of like sketchy xerography look, but b it really um, takes to another level that these characters are just like. Illustrations come to life in a movie, so they like will climb up the lettering that's in the like the text of the book, and they'll like you know, like hang like hang off of the periods, or like smash into the letters, and the letters will fall, and they'll carry them across the screen, and it just does some really fun things with the format. Um, it's you know, a lot of Disney movies look really nice, and like the, you can tell the animators care about how their movies look and how they're animated, but it's one of the very few Disney movies that seems like. Like, it's as much animated just for the joy of animation as it is for plots. You know, it... It's, it's not the same as Fantasia, but it has that same spirit of we're just playing with visuals because we want to see what happens. And we just want to see, you know, what it looks like when we do this weird experimental stuff that, like, isn't really going to work in a convention, na- conventional narrative feature. Mm-hmm. But within this mo- movie, that's, like, these, like, vignettes strung together in which characters are, like, jumping over the spine of the book and, like, crawling over the punctuation that they're speaking at that very moment. Like, it just does some really interesting stuff with just... You know, what would it look like if all of a sudden all the characters were just animated with chalk drawings instead of, like, you know, paint and ink and, and things like that? I, that's a movie people should see. I mean, it's, it's in the middle of the Disney revival, quote unquote, that's currently going on. So it's not exactly like a Dark Age movie that people ignore. But it's right between, like, it came right after... F- Um, It was between Tangled and Frozen, right? It's between Tangled and Frozen, so it got it got. I think it got kind of crowded out um, because Mm -hmm. of that. It's also like the movie proper is like less than an hour long, and with credits, it's like an hour and three minutes. Um, And so it's. I think a lot of people view it as kind of slight, but I think it's really great. Anyway, I've uh, unless you guys have other stuff to talk about with Disney, we can we can move on. (laughs) (laughs) I could talk about Disney for a long (laughs) time because it's been a significant part of my summer, but. I sometimes can...
3: Nathan, you got you got five minutes to talk about Summer of Sam. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Um, so, I guess I haven't really seen much over the past uh, two weeks. But uh, two weeks ago, I saw Spike Lee's Summer of Sam um, from 1999, which I think is one of Spike Lee's uh, more overlooked movies. Uh, It's basically a sort of in the, you know, big jukebox period piece, crime thriller vein of Goodfellas and Casino and Boogie Nights and Zodiac and Carlito's Way. It's set in New York City in the summer of 1977 um, when the streets are roamed by the son of Sam Killer, a mentally disturbed serial killer. Who carried out a series of vicious murders uh, Mostly in Queens, but throughout the city of New York And it stars John Leguizamo, Adrian Brody, Maris Orvino As a group of uh, young adults, mostly in, in the Bronx During this summer, you know, during the summer you also had um, The uh, blackout um, where power was wiped out for a For a extended period of time, you had some some riots in uh, Brooklyn and and Harlem. Um, You know, it was just generally a crazy summer. Uh, The Yankees had a had a winning series. Um, It was the first summer of disco. You know, CBGB and uh, punk were also taking off at the same time. Um, hip hop slowly starting to, to, to become a thing. So really it's just a very crazy time, a very interesting time in New York history. Um, so this film, I don't know why it, uh, has, you know, not much of a reputation. It's just, I think it, it's not that people dislike it really. It got a mixed reception, but I think it's just one of Spike Lee's films that, that is generally, um, not given very much attention, and so I going into it, you know, I was just sort of trying to check another Spike Lee movie off the list. Was really blown away by it. Um, it's basically so in the uh, the it's basically similar to Do the Right Thing, but spread over a more extended period of time. You know, it's about how how the heat and and um, cultural attitudes and and violence really start to boil in in this sort of confined environment. Um, You know, do the right thing happens over a day. This happens over a period, you know, over an entire summer. Um, But uh, it becomes, you know, sort of about... The rule by mob, you know, you have all these Italian American guys policing the streets in the Bronx, going after anyone who's a little bit different, uh, ultimately blaming um, the son of Sam Killings on a punk played by Adrian Brody, who has this amazing like Big spiky hair In the movie And also has a blonde mohawk um, And he's in a punk band He's also a dancer And stripper at a Male burlesque review um, And so you know He's he's different from everyone else In his neighborhood They think he's the son of Sam Killer And go after him um, So it's really about That sort of prejudice And and judgment um, that, that you know Just boil um, when, when something bad is happening And people are looking for a scapegoat I think that sort of you know I mentioned it's in this tier of Goodfellas, Boogie Nights kind of movie, but for me it's honestly maybe like the best of those movies. It has this absolutely amazing soundtrack, uh, curated by Spike Lee himself. You know, just a lot of like the the, the best disco cuts. You know, Chic, um, Machine. Just a lot of great, hard hitting uh, dance music that I am a a big fan of. It's just got this really amazing, pulsating rhythm to it. It also has these two amazing sequences that are set to uh, two different songs by The Who. The scene set to Baba O'Reilly is maybe like the best thing Spike Lee has ever done. This just sort of um, juggling all these narrative threads in this really tightly edited. Scene of intellectual montage. Um, you know, you have violence and and street fights and rumbles contrasted with
0: one minute Adrian
3: Brody's <laughs> band playing and Adrian Brody dancing. Uh, it's just like a Spike Lee firing uh, on all cylinders. It's loud. It's colorful. It's it's just a. Amazing piece of filmmaking, and it's also all the stuff with the summer. The, the son of Sam Killer is like this really funny parody of Seven, um, where and John Truturo at one point shows up as a talking dog who urges the son of Sam uh, Killer to go out and, and kill. Um, so it's it's both you know a very uh, a dark and, and violent movie, um, but it's also very funny and poignant and and has something to say. As, I mean, it's as as not a surprise, you know. It's a Spike Lee joint, um, but I think it, it deserves a better reputation. It deserves to be seen more than it more than it is right now. So.
0: Perfect. Right at five. But it sounds like, can you watch that movie anywhere?
3: Uh, I know it's uh, on DVD, you know, so I'm sure you could also rent it on iTunes or or wherever. Um, Movies are available, you know, your local library.
0: All right, we're going to take a short break. We will be back talking Killer of Sheep in part two. Hello, Cinematary listeners. This is Zach Dennis with an important message because I have not talked to you enough during this episode. Uh Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money. We're not clamoring for your dollars. At this time, we just want to enjoy each other's company and talk about the movies and feel our you know, distribute our thoughts to the world and become podcasting moguls. You know, simple stuff, no money involved. Uh, however, there are a few things that you could do to help out the show. We would really appreciate it. The first thing is review us on iTunes. I I know literally every podcast asks you this they're like please review us on iTunes but it's like important because I don't know iTunes this is what they do this is how this is how the Apple Lords constrict us and keep us in their system that's just what happens so we need a nice little review just take like two minutes one day be like this is podcast review time put us on the list uh, secondly you can tweet us we're at Cinematary on Twitter or better yet send us an email we're Cinematary at yahoo.com so we can hear from you if you're just like Zach uh you- you have terrible taste why do you keep talking about these superhero movies uh you keep talking also you keep talking about these japanese movies where all they do is 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 drink sake and smoke cigarettes and talk about how life's awful and i'll be like yeah but you're wrong and you'll be like yeah but i'm just emailing you and it'll be a whole thing it'll be a nice discourse think about it um and finally please tell your friends and family you know they should know as well i'm sure they like movies i'm sure they like podcasts we don't know uh to recap review on itunes itunes review day do that secondly send your thoughts twitter email one of those do it third share with your friends and family we would love it do it please thank you now let's get back to the show
3: Mm-hmm. That no one
0: and we are back with part two of episode 205 of Cinematary. In this part, we'll be continuing our young critics watch old movie series with 1977's Killer of Sheep. The film was written, directed, produced, and shot by Charles Burnett. It features Henry G. Sanders, Casey Moore, and Charles Bracy. The drama depicts the culture of urban African Americans in Los Angeles' Watts district. The film's style is often likened to Italian neorealism. Killer of Sheep was shot in Watts on a budget of less than $10,000 over roughly a year's worth of weekends in 1972 and 1973, with additional shooting in 1975. In 1977, Burnett submitted the film as his Master of Fine Arts thesis at the School of Film at the University of California, Los Angeles. Burnett stated that he also intended to make the film a history of African-American music and filled it with music from a variety of genres and different eras. Though the film won the Critics Award at the Berlin International Film Festival and was acclaimed at the Toronto International Film Festival, it never saw wide release due to complications and securing the music rights for the 22 songs on the soundtrack, which include such big hits as Dinah Washington, Paul Robeson, Louis Armstrong, and Earth, Wind, and Fire. It remained in obscurity for nearly 30 years, garnering much critical and academic praise and earning a reputation as a lost classic. The film has been likened by a number of critics and scholars to the work of Italian neorealist directors, particularly Vito De Sica, Vittorio De Sica and Roberto Rossellini for his documentary Aesthetic and Use of Mostly Non-Professional on-location actors. Burnett has also been compared to Yasuhiro Ozu for his strong sense of composition, Stanley Kubrick for his sharp ear for juxtaposing popular music with images, John Cassavetes for his knack for coaxing natural performances from amateur actors, and Robert Altman for his interest in the minutiae of human interaction. Burnett's self-professed influences are Jean Renoir, uh, Basil Wright, and Federico Fellini, all of whom are high examples of the tender, humane, and compassionate qualities for which Burnett has been praised, qualities which are intrinsically present- or presented in Killer of Sheep. Having previously only existed on a worn 16mm print, the film was restored and enlarged to 35mm by the UCLA Film and Television Archive and Milestone Films, thanks in part to a donation from filmmaker Steven Soderbergh. The soundtrack, which had not been relicensed, was also paid for at a cost of over $150,000. On March 30th, 2007, it opened in select theaters in the United States and Canada and was released on DVD on November 13th of that year as part of a deluxe box set with a director's cut of Burnett's sophomore feature, My Brother's Wedding, and three Burnett's shorts, Several Friends, a 1969 aesthetic precursor to Killer of Sheep, The Horse, an, quote, allegory of the South in Burnett's words, and When It Rains, praised as one of the greatest short films of all time by critic Jonathan Rosenbaum. The New York Times said, an American masterpiece, independent to the bone, this may be Mr. Burnett's most radical truth-telling. Roger Ebert said, what... Burnett captures above all on Killer of Sheep is the deadening ennui of hot, empty summer days, the dusty passage of time when windows and screen doors stood open and the way the breathless city crawls past and he pays attention to the heroic efforts of this man and wife to make a good home for their children. Poverty in the ghetto is not the guns and drugs we see on TV. It's more often like life in the movie. Good, honest, hardworking people trying to get by, keeping up their hopes, loving their children and get a little sleep. Entertainment Weekly said, way ahead of its time 30 years ago and just as stunning today, Killer of Sheep is one of those marvels of original movie making that keeps hope of artistic independence alive. Here's to the miracle of a very classic, granted, the opposite of a killing. Here's to life. A. So, I'm going to start with uh, you, Andrew, and Nathan. I, Malcolm, I don't know if you've seen the film before, but I know you guys have seen it. What What are your uh, What were your thoughts rewatching this movie?
1: Nathan, you've probably seen it more than any of us, right? And you've given this uh, five stars in the Letterbox. So I'm curious to hear um, your thoughts.
3: I've actually only seen it twice, which I think is also how many times you've seen it, Andrew. I've seen um, it three times. But you've seen it three times. The damn, you've seen oh, it yeah. more than me. Mm, um, yeah. So I first saw this film. When I was in high school, um, as sort of a burgeoning cinephile, I encountered it in Roger Ebert's great movies, books, and at that time I was very interested in this sort of naturalist, um, realist filmmaking. I don't exactly know why, but I was very into that, um, sort of, you know, depiction uh, rugged depiction of of humanity um and i was really blown away by this movie and i didn't revisit it until a few months ago um in a class uh, um, and i was again really struck by it um i think that what makes this movie um to, to two things that make it very special to me are a how many registers Burnett is able to successfully work in? Um, you have you know like we like like Zach mentioned in the introduction. You know you have all this music. You have all of these sequences in in um, the uh, slaughterhouse with with music playing. You have that incredible sequence with um, Stan and and his wife. Dancing to uh, this bitter earth by Dinah Washington, you know, just a very, um, I think, effective use of music. But it's also a, a, a funny movie. Um, you know, Stan sort of just encounters these people in his neighborhood, and um, you know, they 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 crack jokes, even though things are often monotonous and and uneventful, and and you can tell life is a little hard. Um, there's still a, a sense of humor and a warmth there, um, and there's stuff like uh, the whole uh, episode with Stan and his friend trying to get the uh, engine, which I think is just both this, you know, this sort of comic gag, but also there's this moment where Stan and his friend are trying to load the um, engine onto their truck, where the film really, for me, shifts into this sort of cinema sure. verite register, and and just you know, snaps out of out of narrative mode um, and into something more akin to documentary. But at the same time, you have a really keen sense of style, um, you know, a, a great use of, of contrast and shadow. And and the, and the other reason why I think this is a really crucial and um, film and one of the most important American films and one of the greatest is, uh, I think, in its sort of de- Subtle, you know, not on the nose, but but I think it's there. You know, it's depiction of of mental illness. I feel like to me, it's very clear that Stan is depressed. You know, he's dis- disinterested in his family and in his wife. He's disengaged. You know, he's not there bawling his eyes out or anything. Um, you know, it's not at
1: the very first conversation with him. Somebody asks him uh, if he's thinking about suicide. Yeah,
3: you know, it's just like he is. Frankly, just, you know, he's he's just disconnected and and down. And um, especially, you know, at a time in American cinema where most depictions of, of black men were, you know, either the really strong, masculine, macho uh, heroes of black exploitation movies or were otherwise, you know, um, often, often, you know, villains or, or some kind of side character, um, to show just this, this sort of depression to, to, to deal with mental illness in this very frank, um, way where it's just a part of the, world, you know, it's just a part of this milieu and life and Watts, I think is, is really, um, something, something radical and something that deserves to be recognized. Um, Andrew, I'm, I'm interested to hear you talk about this movie a little bit, cause I know that you are much more positive on it than you were, um, the first time you saw it.
1: Yeah, that's right. The first time I saw this movie, I really didn't know what to do with it. Um, I think I maybe saw it a little bit too early, um, though I'm impressed that you saw it in high school and really blown away by it. I, I didn't I didn't know what to do with this thing. Um, it, was, it was very slow, um, very uh, mundane, and, and kind of plotless, and I just had, I had a hard time staying engaged, had a hard time uh, just getting interested in the, the characters and their story. Um But I think that was before I had really had much exposure to movies with this tone and with this pace, Um, you know, kind of... Making a decided effort to um, educate myself on like quote unquote slow cinema, I I circled back around to Killer of Sheep and was really taken by uh, the kind of poetic tone that it strikes uh, using music uh, to kind of carry you uh, from scene to scene, whether or not those scenes are like logically connected um, and this time watching it a third time I think has opened up even more for me um, in how the movie is able to kind of operate on these two different registers at the same time um, on, on the one hand you have the the story of the adults um, which is like you, you mentioned like rugged and, and harsh um, in, in your description Nathan I think those are, are both very uh, accurate descriptors um, it just it just seems like everyone is just barely scraping by and and it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of hope. There's a conversation early on where um, somebody mentions like you've you've worked hard your whole life and you don't even have like a nice pair of pants uh, to put on. And that that seems to be the existence of of the the adults in this film that is so tired all the time. Um, And then it... Juxtaposes that with these uh, really uh, like non sequitur sporadic scenes of children just finding ways to entertain themselves, whether that's like throwing dirt at each other or like jumping from building to building, um, smashing things, um, you know, wearing these these really strange masks, uh, listening to um, you know uh, LP records and singing along to them, uh, and, and these scenes uh, have this like really. Um, like beautiful, innocent, poetic quality to them that I would compare to like the 50 sequences in Terrence Malick's Tree of Life where it seems like um, every aspect of childhood is kind of imbued with this this magic, this beauty. And these, these children don't seem to really... Um, Register um, or, or be, be too like negatively affected by the fact that they're living in poverty. Like to them, this is just childhood, and they're just you know they get to roam free and, and hang out and and be happy. Uh, and the the fact that the movie like can contain both of those emotions at the same time and kind of use music and, and editing as the, the glue that holds them together, um, I I really enjoy. Uh, this is a movie, like, um, Zach and Nathan, you guys have both mentioned, that kind of serves as a counterpoint to the kinds of urban stories that were being told uh, in the 70s. And, th- like, even just in this film, uh, it, it kind of... Um, Suggest that, like, you know, the the inner city contains multitudes and you cannot quite just tell one story about it. Um, Everybody's experience is going to be a little bit different. Um, Michael, you uh, kind of went into this maybe expecting it to go a different direction than it ended up going. What are your thoughts on this? So, this was my first time watching it and I I like the movie.
2: Let me just start off. I I like the movie. I thought it's like. It has a lot of life in it, and not, mm. not in, like, this kind of lively, like, everything is, like, so, you know, energetic thing, but, like, like you guys are talking about, it, it shows the scope of, like, you know, different experiences and, and different, like, types of experiences that I think is really, um, you know... Neat, Um, But, yeah, like, I think, like, I think I had read, you know, talking about, like, you know, Italian neorealism. And, like, I was also, like, early on in the movie kind of picking up on maybe, like, some, like, Scorsese Mean Streets vibes as well. And, like, there's a part early in the movie where they they ask the main – these two guys come up to the main character and ask, you know, if he could kill somebody um, because they had, you know – Someone told us that you would do that. And he's like, no, nah, man, why, why would I do that? You know, basically, you know, saying like, no, of right. course not. But, like, for some reason, like, I was thinking, like, you know, Italian neorealism, bicycle thieves, and, like, Scorsese and things like that. And so I was thinking, like, okay, so I know how this movie's going to go. He's, you know, because at the beginning of the movie, they have, like, you know, there's financial struggle and lot, And I'm like, okay, his financial struggles are going to get more and more dire until he has to kill somebody. And The Killer of Sheep, the title is a double entendre because he's going to be a killer. <laughs> Plus, he's also working in a slaughterhouse and killing sheep. And so, I mean, obviously, the movie didn't go that way, but for a long time probably two thirds of the movie. I was kind of waiting for that arc to, to coalesce <laughs> just because I, um, I was, I felt, I felt that plot was seeded early on. Um, but it turns out it's just the mode of the movie is this kind of, um, you know, kind of meandering episodic slice of life bit. And so the, yeah. this is just one of many experiences that our main character has, whereas I was reading a, you know, the beginning of an arc into that. Um, but I mean, yeah. I mean, overall, I, I liked it a lot, um, but it kind of, after a while, confounded my expectation of like a bicycle yeah. thieves like ending, where a man is is t- driven to to moral moral uh, you know depths because <laughs> right. of his financial
1: straits. I mean, I didn't have that exact thought the first time I was watching it, but I think that your experience is not totally dissimilar from mine. Just like sitting there, you know, as a fairly relatively young cinephile, thinking like when is something conventionally interesting going to happen? And it never really does. You kind of have to bring yourself uh, to the movie rather than wait for it to come to you.
2: Yeah, and I know you and I were talking about this earlier too, but, like, there's a part of me that kind of wishes this were just a straight documentary, like, cinema verite-type documentary just... Because a lot of the stuff that's captured in the movie is, you know stuff that you could conceivably have just like you know pointed a camera and and come across i mean there's there there are constructed moments and it's not like it's not a documentary but i part i I kind of wonder like you know what what this would look like And, and part of me wishes that like killer sheep was was a documentary at times
1: Though I think that the most beautiful moments of the movie are the constructed moments. Uh, Nathan mentioned the slow dance scene yeah. to Bitter Earth. Um, there's the, the great um, sequence where the, the motor falls out of the, the trunk of the car. A great pan away from the motor as they're driving away. Like These are moments that you couldn't quite capture in a documentary. That's and true. It, it, does, it does have um, this kind of uh, narrative voice with, with the camera work and... Um, how how the characters are framed. Uh, Nathan, you're about to say something now.
3: Yeah, I was going to basically say the same thing that you were. You know, there's that. I would also add that great moment early on where Santa's talking to his friend and puts the teacup against his face, and it just feels, <laughs> yes, like, uh, a, feels it like feels like love. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's this sort of uh, witty, uh, you know, um, it feels it feels a little written, but at the same time, it's such a tender um, and sincere performance that that I. I I like that, and I so I like that sort of marriage of that, those stylized moments and those moments that feel a little more off the cuff. Um, and I'm also glad, Michael, that you mentioned Mean Streets because there's a really great article by Jay Hoberman where he talks about uh, Killer Sheep and Eraserhead coming out roughly I was contemporaneous, about and how yeah. they are these sort of foundational movies of American independent cinema. But yeah. also, mm-hmm. this this film was in production around the same time as Mean Streets, and so it is. Of a piece, I think, you know, it's a sort of jukebox movie, too, but for a very different type of, of I mean, obviously, New York versus Los Angeles, so, uh, Italian-American milieu versus African-American milieu, um, but different experiences. But at the same time, I think it's sort of that, you know, this this music is, is what unites um a lot of these 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 episodes and i also like the the movie's approach to conflict where you do have Lingering stresses But a lot of times Things happen Like the engine Falls off the truck or, or at the end of the movie They get a flat tire While they're on You know Their way to Have a nice Have a nice day um, You know these, these Just little disappointments Happen And they're not Huge plot points But you just get This sense That this is Just sort of life You know Just this rolling Series of, of One little setback After another um, Zach I'm, I'm interested In hearing your Thoughts on this movie
0: yeah, um, this is definitely a movie that, you know, you I feel like people will hear the term, oh, it's cinema verite, and, and they already roll their eyes because uh, for I feel like people are like, I don't, you know, that just seems like nothing's going to happen, and, and, and there's stuff that happens, but this kind of reads more like, a, like an Italian neorealist film or a lot of Ozu's films where it's not about it's not really about the activities that are happening, but about the emotions being portrayed by the characters. And, but one of the, it's so great because yeah, you have these, these, these things that happen, but really what, what, what's effective is like Nathan was describing these small moments that happen. And this is kind of one of those to me, memory films where it's capturing, Moments that you would assume would be this this crucial memory, but really the the memories that that's gonna happen is the kids just playing outside, messing around, uh, the the slow dance scene, just these kind of small minutia moments in in life that I feel like is are much more ingrained into our our memory than giant moments you know I most people associate the, the great moments of life with something like a graduation or some people say a prom or uh, you know big moment big defining moments in, in people's lives that's that's kind of moves them forward in life but I feel like the the more more pronounced more resonant memories are the ones are the, just those small ones that you have with interactions with people or doing something quiet that you just love or just, just watching people as they as they interact I think that those are much more effective memories and killer of sheep really taps into that and and creates these moments that sure you could watch it and, and say this doesn't do much there's nothing really happening but if you watch the, the the faces of the kids or the or the parents or the people around them or you watch the faces and and kind of body language of really any of the characters in this movie you can see them it's it's just the the stories the quote-unquote is so fragmented because it's it's a memory movie it's it's your body your you're jumping to different things that that happened over the course of the summer and they don't always go together but it's something that was ingrained in somebody's mind and to me I find those to be the most effective films in, in terms of just cinema and broad because it, that's tapping into the, the visual nature of movies and it, it requires you to to really challenge the amount of empathy and listening that you do to, to people at both you know Visually on their faces and their body language, but also just listening to what they say. Nathan, you mentioned that they touch on uh, mental illness, and and th- he definitely has you know something going on. Just the despondence, the, the the lack of, of of effort that he's portraying. Uh, there's it, there's something deeply happening there. But it it I love how it's handled, where they never really. Deeply engaged, they never really go for it and really dive into that because I think that just something, especially in the seventies, that people really didn't didn't know what to do with. He he, you know, there's his wife seeing him as just being kind of sad and, and and tired it's not really that he's that he's he's dealing with something and clearly is struggling to to get by with the the small details in life because the, you do get in that kind of rhythm of you're doing something from day to day and it tires you out and you just kind of want to get rid of it and i think that that this film does a excellent job of really focusing in and, and capturing those moments it's such a Poetic and beautiful way.
1: And talk about a you know a story where the the plot beats are the emotions and that story is kind of playing out on the characters' faces. I think the the actress who plays um, Stan's wife in this movie is really incredible at uh, at presenting these these huge emotional moments with with small facial expressions. Um, just, just scenes where she's kind of looking at him uh, he, he comes home one day and asks like, what, what she did today and, and she just kind of shakes her head and, and kind of bats her eyelashes at him and uh, you can tell that like she very much wants to make him happy want, wants him to kind of come home to a happy home but she's just kind of torn up and doesn't quite know what to, to do with herself but doesn't really know how to verbalize it either um, like there's just so many moments with, with her face throughout this movie like that
0: no definitely you can feel that tension between she's reading it as her husband's disinterested in her he's he doesn't want to you know continue doing this but then yeah I i think again that slow dance scene is so it really epitomizes that where you have this very sensual very uh Romantic sequence where they're just sitting there and they slow dance for a really long time. It's not like it's a a, a it's quick a full, thing. It's a
1: full song. Yeah, you, you yeah. really get the and, the and they only make like one and a half turns in their dance. Too.
0: Yeah, it's so slow. It's so sensual, and then it just kind of it, it abruptly ends. And so you can understand her psyche where she's reading this as he's not interested in her. But I think again, it's just this it's this misunderstanding of what people are internally struggling with, and that that just seemed to. Be something that that he, Burnett really captured in a way that I haven't necessarily seen it that much in, in
3: films. Something I want to bring up um, I don't know if anybody else had any thoughts on this. I know that Michael this is a topic that you are um, always interested in, but I, I I wondered if anyone else had any feelings about sort of what this movie has to say about about life in a city. You know, this is a very different Los Angeles than I think we're often used to seeing in in film. Uh, I mean, you know, beginning to become more common around this time, but but still something of a rarity to to focus a on on. Um, an African-American community, but also a sort of working class, you know, place where it's not abject poverty, but everyone is, is, you know, a little paycheck to paycheck, struggling to get by. And so that's very different than, than uh, what we're used to And this. Also, this movie takes place and and was filmed uh, not too long after the Watts riots, um, you know, really shook up this community so I, I you know it feels to me like these people are sort of living maybe in the aftermath of that you know all of these events happened that that changed their community that um affected it you know uh, emotionally but also on a physical and material level you know um so I don't know if anybody else had any had any feelings or, or thoughts about the relationship of this movie to its environment
2: I think the movie does a really interesting thing regarding the environment again splitting between the adults and the kids because the adults um, like the the adults have um, like locations they go to right we get, the home we have the the workplace the slaughterhouse we have like you know various things that they do business like right and so like adults are very tied to locations and not so much Mm -hmm. like you don't see as much as the adults interacting with like the community or the architecture of the city or whatever and then you have these kids who are like running around in like like there's a there's a scene where there's like some crumbling building or something and the kids are like just picking up pieces of rubble and throwing them and yeah like things like that and it's just this really interesting thing and especially if you think think about it with the connection to like you know what the characters histories are with right. this and so like the these kids kind of see this as uh, you know innocently and they can take up like these kind of this crumbling infrastructure and make something out of it it's a playground and yeah it's a playground it's it's a place where like we're talking about with memory this is a place where they're going to have um, fond memories running around in whatever, like decrepit, like warehouse or whatever this was, whereas like the adults will have remembered, like possibly like, you know, what the community used to be or mm-hmm. like, not even that, but like, you know, as you get older, you kind of are more and more tied to specific locations, like your workplace or something yeah. like that. And I mean, I remember, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, but I, I remember running around in like the opposite, like homes being built, you know, um, yeah home, you know, there'd be like a subdivision that my friend lived in and the houses were still being built and we'd go around when the builders weren't there and just like run around in the, like on the foundations and the frames of the houses and stuff like that. And those are like really evocative memories for me. And in a way, like kind of define like my relationship to that community more so than like whatever my parents are doing at the time, right. like with them, like they have, they had, my parents have things that they did as well, but they weren't like you know, the infrastructure of of the environment wasn't what they um, were interacting with. Whereas, like, as a kid, and you're, like, kind of let free to play, you you can, like, just tumble all around that, and it becomes, right. like, there's a certain part of that become that becomes part of you or part of your memories that maybe adults don't have access to.
1: Tumble is a good word. Uh, and I'm thinking back to the way this movie is shot, and maybe I'm misremembering, but my memory is that there's not a lot of camera movement in the adult-centric scenes, right? That's a lot of static cameras, yeah. like, yeah. put the camera somewhere in a room and watch them have a conversation, whereas there's lots uh, of tracking shots and panning um, in the, the children's sequences. I'm thinking of the part where the camera is, like, uh, behind the window of a train and it's it's yeah. going to the left and you're seeing the children chase the train and throw things at the train. It just always seems like there's so much movement uh, horizontally in, in the kids' sequences, and there's just so much static in the adult ones
2: i love that train sequence in particular because there's the moment where the kids are like they've like laid one of the dudes on the track and they're trying to like push the car (laughs) but they can't of course the car weighs like a ton or whatever but like that just is like such a kid thing to do that like you have this like huge machinery around you that's just kind of like taken for granted by adults of like just oh that's you know just part of modern life or whatever but you're just like so fascinated with like how it works and like you're gonna climb up into it and like do stuff with it and stuff that like you know is maybe dangerous but like is also just like showing just a real investment in like the the minutiae of like how this environment functions that i think is really interesting
3: i think one of the things that for me is really admirable about this movie is how it is so fully connected to both the world of adults and the world of children and really gives even ground to both of those worlds and sort of you know like you're saying Michael you know when you are a kid you take the environment for what it is but you don't really have the same sort of associations that you do when you're older you know you are aware of the the sort of the crumbling buildings and and, and um, the garbage, but it's not, you know, it's not decay in your mind. It's not a negative thing. It's just these are the objects that are there in front of you. But then, you know, you, you are older and you're sort of assigned to these positions. And so you start to sort of you start to, I guess, disconnect from the physical environment when you be, you know, associate places with specific tasks or specific functions, you know, the home, work, whatever these institutions are, you know, and, and so I think there's a way in which that sort of mirrors Stan's own experience of, of dissociation and, and disconnection where he is both, you know, as, as someone dealing with depression, disconnected emotionally from the world around him, but physically too, and, and is just sort of moving through these spaces, carrying out these tasks, whereas you have children very connected to the world around them and and willing to, to play with it and and interact with it and, and make something out of it.
1: Zach, any other last thoughts from you? I feel like we're kind of wrapping up our discussion.
0: No, I, I really enjoyed this film. I'm excited to kind of revisit it and see what a second viewing does because I think a lot of the, the tiny details that I I mean I try to pick up on as many as possible but it's one of those the the more you watch it the more you'll pick up on and really appreciate so I'm excited for a rewatch but good luck trying to find this thing I, I it was at the public library but it is not streaming anywhere online
1: Yeah Milestone Film seems to have the exclusive rights to this thing um one thing that I would like to ask before we wrap up here um you know early on when we first started doing our young critics watch old movies uh, series uh, like four years ago now Uh, we were talking about like what movies kind of deserve to be in like the the canon of uh, American cinema was what we were talking about mostly back then um, and, Zach, you mentioned in your intro that this is one of those movies that was lost for a long time and, and has kind of been reclaimed and championed as, as one of these movies that needs to be part of the, the American film canon, but maybe isn't so much. Uh, so I'm wondering, um, I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and put out an emphatic yes that I think this does need to be like a canon movie. Um, though me and Mike were having a conversation as to like how accessible it is compared to other like big canon movies, and, and whether or not like um, mainstream audiences would respond positively to it. Um, so, what what are y'all's thoughts on that? That does this need to be like seen as widely as possible?
3: I mean, I think the thing for for me, um, I'll just say that I think it's a very interesting case study sort of in canon building, just because it is um, exemplary of kind of the uh, trickle-down effect that can that can um, help a movie find its way into the canon. You know, again, this was a movie that was a student film. It was not widely distributed when it played in New York. It only played at the Whitney Museum for about a week. Um, you know, again, didn't circulate widely. It was preserved in the National Film Registry and slowly, slowly, slowly has become... More available, more widely seen so, But I think that's also That's something that happens a lot With canonical movies I mean, you know, Citizen Kane Was not Was was not a, a incredibly popular movie When it came out And for many years People were very resistant to it um, Because for them It did not exemplify You know, what was great about Hollywood Or, or what was conventionally um, You know worth studying about Hollywood it was this sort of outlier this exception but over time it's you know become like the greatest American film you know that's sort of the status it has now but that's a movie that also a lot of people see it and maybe because of the status maybe they think it's overhyped but it also doesn't work for a lot of people um but I but I again I think that it's a movie that even if it isn't the most widely circulated of of the great american canon um i think it's definitely has a place um just you know a being a a very important um film you know from from one of our greatest from from one of the you know the first really like prominent african-american independent voices Um, But also from someone who is just a a great filmmaker And who deserves even more attention Because, you know, he's still living He made a lot of films But most of them aren't widely available You know, they had some kind of problem In their release and their distribution Or just weren't circulated And uh, so he's someone who I think really, you know Deserves that push Deserves that central place Deserves more eyes on his movies Um, and And I really truly hope that I mean, you know, he's an older guy now But I hope that this kind of continual push for emphasis on his career, you know, I hope that he, he maybe gives us something else. Um, that, would, that would be, to me, the, like, really great reward of this movie's... Again, it's a great movie, but I don't know. I, I hope that the continued emphasis leads to some more Charles Burnett productions.
0: I agree. I think that this film needs to be in a canon list. I think it it, it definitely qualifies as one of the great uh, films of all time and American films of all time. That being said, I don't see a mainstream audience dealing with this. They're they're, they're not going to take the time to really immerse themselves in the world that you have to inhabit to, uh, or at least the headspace that you have to inhabit to to really understand and. And listen in the, to this movie. I don't think that people want to do that with movies. They they want it spelled out to them. And so a mainstream audience is definitely going to reject this. Uh, and that's no, I don't give a shit. Those people are awful. So
1: and does <laughs> no. that matter? Like, does does a mainstream audience rejection? No. <laughs> but, but, but does it I mean, matter for like mainstream canon stats? But I was yeah because canon is like a weird interplay between what we
2: recognize as important and also what people watch. And, yeah. you know, like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, there are different kinds of canons, right? Like, the sight and sound list is its own kind of canon. You know, the AFI 100 movies list is a different kind of canon. You know, the IMDb, whatever. You know, I mean, there's, there's like, all different kinds. Like, this is probably never going to occupy whatever space, you know, people, you know, fill up with, you know, Indiana Jones and, that, you know, those kinds of, like, canonical movies but if you're looking for like movies that are you know represent like a a sort of like important you know aesthetic milestone or an important like you know f- filmic sensibility like it it deserves like a spot in that you know I cuz I think like the people who are interested in those things will consider it you know an important film you know people who are more you know, driven by conventional narrative cinema maybe aren't going to respond that well. And so, I, you know, the canon, quote unquote, is such a, it's so nebulous because there's different ways people approach that and, and different audiences that interact with that.
3: I will say really, really. People stop. Uh, I will say really quick before we, we sign off, you know, we were talking about Mean Streets a little earlier. I think that Charles Burnett should have the reputation of, of Martin Scorsese. Um, oh, yeah. And, well, and if you look I at also,
2: Scorsese's early movies, like, they're kind of, like, weird and, and narratively confounding as yeah, well, but, yeah. like, he just had some, you know, he had the right champions and, and the right distributions and, you know, didn't have, you know, a, a, I guess a racial bias against him, you know, on and that, you know, helped him to get access to a lot more money and a lot more film technology uh, that, you know, helped him. Kind Plus of... his mom cooked spaghetti
0: on the set.
1: Yeah. And Charles <laughs> Way to go, Charlie Burnett. <laughs> I think not.
3: Oh, man. Also, let's say, just l- it's real, sorry, one final thing. Uh, it's so amazing that this is a student film. That's really, to me, like. Oh, definitely. Amazing, yeah. Anyways alright well I believe
0: that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary you can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Cinematary on Twitter at, at the handle at Cinematary and on Letterboxd at Letterboxd.com slash Cinematary we post all the movies that we talked about this week next week we will be sadly concluding our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series
1: oh hey 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 hey, hey, hey. We, we have one more thing that we need to ask the listeners about because oh, yeah, we may not be right. concluding so, um, our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series next week right? So, so, so now you got it. Okay. Uh, so we we had an idea, um, right? Um, I've mentioned earlier in this episode that we've been doing the Young Critic series for a long time. This is our fourth go round with this thing now. I um, mean, if you'll remember, the first time we did the Young Critic series, or maybe it was the second time, uh, we went all the way up to the '90s. We went from the 1920s to the 1990s, um, and these last two years we've cut it off at the '70s, um, and. Nathan suggested that maybe we extend it a little bit further yet again. We're not going to go all the way to the 90s, but we're thinking about adding two more weeks where we cover 80s movies. Um, One 80s movies in English and one 80s movie um, in some other language. Um, And my idea was that we farm our suggestions out to uh, y'all, the listeners. So we only want to do this if people are interested in it. But if you would like to see some cinematary episodes about 80s canonical classics or maybe under-the-radar movies that should be canonical classics, we want you to tweet us the names of those movies um, and we will talk out um, your suggestions and choose two of them to be um, on the podcast for you know two weeks from now and three weeks from now. Uh, if we don't get any suggestions, we just won't do that and we'll, we'll do something else. But uh, if you have an idea at Cinematary on Twitter please send us your title ideas
0: or Zach at Cinematary on email or send us a Facebook message you know all the that also works all the avenues you know guys there's there's a lot going on on social media as, as five
1: star reviews on iTunes we'll take those too yeah it's <laughs> we're not the dark web
3: we're, we're very just engage people <laughs> engage with us please interact with our content that's just all we're saying here we just we don't really we're care really that needing, much we're, very we're very self-conscious conscious, conscious, you, know, you know it's just like it's fine. Just <laughs> click that motherfucking
0: like we're not the dark web guys it. like it's it'll be fine we're not gonna like play cards against humanity and then murder people so it's cool but unfriended too it's in theaters now thank you guys for listening and we will see you next week